Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. In today's video, we're going to be discussing another solved case for my Curious Case series. This case was actually requested by one of you guys over on requestacase.com. If you have any Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Any cases you would like to see me cover on this channel, then jump over there and send in your submissions. Before we delve into today's case though, I'd just like to announce that for the next few episodes, we will be hosting a fundraiser for the DNA Doe Project. The DNA Doe Project is a non-profit organization that identifies Jane and John Doe cases using forensic genealogy. The organization's website lists over 20 success stories where they have been able to positively identify Jane or John Doe cases, giving them their name back. The DNA Doe Project does outstanding work, and it is an organization that I feel very, very strongly about. That is why I've teamed up with one of my favorite small businesses in this fundraising campaign. If you're a longtime viewer of my channel, you'll have noticed that I almost Almost always have a candle or two burning in the background of my video. These candles are actually from a small business called Pause UK. Here are a few of my favorites. This one is Memories. They do that smaller one and they also do these big ones. This one is Woodland. The candles are hand poured in the UK, 100% soy candles making them vegan and they're all completely cruelty free and the company is also very eco-conscious. Pause UK only use reusable, recyclable or compostable materials in their products and honestly I love their candles so so much. They're constantly releasing exclusive fragrances and scents which I always quickly buy up so I thought what a perfect partnership to have in this fundraising campaign. If you head over to the link on screen now or click the link at the top of the description or the link at the top of the pinned comment down below, you can get yourself an exclusively branded candle with 10% of each purchase going to the DNA Doe Project. So not only are you supporting an outstanding charity, but also a small business, which is just as important as ever in today's climate. 
Use discount code JOSHUA, all in capitals, to get 15% off any order placed until the end of July 2020. I'll be announcing how much we've raised for the DNA Dough project throughout this fundraising campaign, so make sure when you grab a candle, you tweet it at me or tag me on Instagram. As always, make sure you're subscribed to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new Curious Case episode just like this one. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. The year of 1990 was a terrifying time for sex workers working on East Sprague Avenue in Spokane, Spokane County, Washington. Multiple women who had worked along the streets had been found murdered there over the previous 15 years, from 1975 to 1990, though most of these cases weren't investigated due to the stigma surrounding sex workers. This was a time when sex workers were viewed as being at the bottom of society, people the police didn't particularly deem important enough to investigate, as they would with, say, a missing judge or a missing businessman or businesswoman. The taboo and stigma surrounding sex workers actually plays a massive part in today's case, so please keep that in mind throughout the rest of today's episode. So when three women who worked on East Sprague Avenue were found dead along the Spokane River in the span of just four months, the entire county was shaken to its core. The victims all knew one another as they lived at the same apartment building and would sometimes even work together. They had all died under the same circumstances, suffering gunshot wounds from a 22 caliber firearm and were all found either partially or fully naked. Many suspects were considered by police over the years, including Robert Yates, who was convicted for murdering 13 women who worked along East Sprague Avenue between the years of 1975 and 1998. According to wikipedia.org, Robert Yates is known to have murdered at least 13 women in Spokane County, though he further confessed to two more murders committed in Walla Walla and another murder in Skagit County. Robert ultimately received the death penalty for his crimes, but was commuted to life without parole for 108 years in prison due to the death penalty being outlawed in Washington state in 2018. It's important to note that one of Robert Yates's victims actually played a vital role in this case. We'll come back to that later on in this episode. However, records showed that Robert Yates had been serving in the army at the time of the murders in this case, and so he was cleared of any involvement. It wasn't until over two decades later when new DNA evidence was uncovered that this case was blown wide open, and the detectives were finally able to bring the killer to justice. 
But who was the killer? And what exactly happened on East Sprague Avenue in the early 90s? On the morning of the 22nd of February 1990, the naked body of 26-year-old mother of two, Yolanda Sapp, was found halfway down a steep riverbank along the Spokane River. Spokane County, according to the 2010 census, has a population of just over 470,000 people and is the fourth most populated county in Washington state. It was actually named after the Spokane tribe and the county seat is the city of Spokane. The crime rates in 2012 in the Spokane metropolitan area per 1,000 people was 64.8, which is almost double the crime rate than the Washington state average. Yolanda had been known to the local police as an illegal substance abuser and sex worker. A green blanket had been found wrapped around her feet, and police noted that there was a white floral patterned blanket in close proximity to her body. Upon forensic examination, traces of blood were discovered on the floral blanket. The investigators managed to extract two DNA profiles from the blood samples found on the blanket, the first being positively identified to be that of the deceased mother of two, Yolanda Sapp. However, the investigators were unable to find a match for the second DNA profile, leaving it unidentified. Detectives came to a straightforward and easy conclusion. This unidentified second DNA profile was highly likely to be that of Yolanda's killer. An autopsy conducted on the remains showed that Yolanda had suffered three gunshot wounds from a small caliber weapon, the bullets entering her back and exiting through the front of her body. These bullets have never been recovered. Alongside the gunshot wounds, pathologists also discovered abrasions and scrapes all over her body. In an attempt to ascertain more information about Yolanda's life, who she was friends with, any potential enemies, ex-boyfriends or girlfriends or anything like that, the detectives decided to go to Yolanda's home and question her boyfriend who lived with her at the time of the attacks. It's important to note it would have been highly likely that the investigators suspected Yolanda's boyfriend of being involved due to the high statistical probability that somebody is murdered by someone they know, and due to the high statistical chance the murderer is their partner. According to the affidavits prepared by the detectives, Yolanda's boyfriend told them that she routinely worked as a sex worker on the street corners near East Sprague Avenue and Spokane Streets. When questioned as to the last time he saw Yolanda, he told officers that he had last seen her at 11pm the night before she was found. She told him that she was going out to work so she could earn some money. Yolanda was last seen by her boyfriend walking in the direction of East Sprague Avenue and Spokane Street, only a 10-minute drive from where her body would later be found. One source claims that she had spoken to a bail bondsman with her boyfriend the day before her body was found. 
However, there was no mention of this anywhere else, so it can't be verified. There also is not much information about Yolanda or her murder available online or in written publications. Maybe this could be attributed to the fact that she is the only non-white victim in this case. These crimes did occur during the 1990s when racism was still, as it is today, very prevalent in the police force and the media within the United States. So it may be possible that this lack of information was caused by police not wanting to investigate too far into Yolanda's life, or even that the media wanted to focus more on the other two victims as they were both white women. Just over a month after Yolanda's body was found, another woman named Nikki Lau disappeared. Like Yolanda, Nikki was a sex worker and regularly worked in the area of East Sprague Avenue. Her significant other had dropped her off for work at around 7.30pm on the 24th of March 1990, but when he returned to pick her up four hours later at 11.30pm, Nikki was nowhere to be seen. He waited for her until around 4.30am before he drove to her mother's house thinking she might have gone straight there after work, though when he got to her mother's house, her mother told him that she hadn't seen Nikki at all that evening. Panic began to set in for Nikki's partner, fearing for the safety of the woman he loved, and his fears were sadly justified when just a few hours later on the 25th of March 1990, the partially nude body of 34-year-old Nikki Lau was found draped over a guardrail underneath the Green Street overpass. Her pants had been pulled down to her knees, exposing her private area, and her shirt had been pulled up to expose her stomach. The back of her body was covered in various markings and bruisings, which suggested that she had been dragged to the place where she had been found. Nikki, like Yolanda, was known to the police as a substance user and street-level sex worker. Nikki's cause of death was found to be due to a singular 22 caliber gunshot wound to the chest. Around 8am that same morning, half a mile away, a man who for the purposes of this video we will refer to as Adam, was searching for aluminium cans in a dumpster. Adam found that the dumpster that he was searching was mostly empty except for some clothing, paperwork and an assortment of other items. Among these items, Adam found a red woman's pocketbook, which he took home with him. When he returned home, Adam switched on the news and saw a story about a woman named Nikki Lau being found murdered. Thinking not much of it, he decided to go through the red pocketbook that he had discovered earlier that day. When he opened it, he realised that it contained several items with the name Nikki Lau on them. He immediately called the Spokane police. The police responded quickly and travelled to Adam's home to collect the pocketbook. And when Adam explained that he had been dumpster diving and had found it in a dumpster, they asked him to take them straight to the place that it was located. Upon inspection of this dumpster, detectives recovered an assortment of items including a black and white sweater, a pair of blue tennis shoes, a hypodermic syringe and a tube of sexual lubricant. 
the items in the dumpster were piled in such a way that indicated that they had actually been just dumped together, along with Nikki's pocketbook. The police were quick to bring in forensics teams to determine if there was any fingerprints, DNA, or anything else on these items that could bring a breakthrough in the case. Fingerprints were developed on several of these items, including these sexual lubricants. However, when the fingerprints were run against the police's database, they hit no matches, leaving them unidentified. On the 15th of May 1990, the body of 38-year-old mother of three, Kathleen Brisbow, was discovered on the west bank of the Spokane River in what is now Spokane Valley. Some reports say that her body was found by two high school students who had been working on a school project near the Spokane River. However, this claim cannot be fully verified. Kathleen had been known to local police as a sex worker and substance user, and it's believed that she was last seen the night before her body was found, when she had approached a retired detective on Sprague Avenue, where she worked, and had spoken to him about drugs. The immediate area above where Kathleen was found, when examined, was determined to have been the scene of a fight or a struggle. There were items of clothing spread across the ground, as well as drops of blood and clumps of hair that seemed to lead to the edge, directly above the area of the riverbank where Kathleen's body was discovered. Kathleen had suffered several blows to her head, which had caused skull fractures, as well as having three broken ribs and three close contact gunshot wounds. One to her head, one to her chest, and one to her right arm, all originating from a 22 caliber firearm. Detectives collected fingernail clippings and a vaginal smear from Kathleen's body and found a DNA profile, However, they could not match it to anybody in their database. It appears from our research that the investigators failed to compare this unidentified DNA profile with the unidentified DNA profile found on Yolanda's remains, despite the extremely similar crime scenes. On the 5th of June 1990, the police spoke to Shannon Zielinski, a friend of Kathleen's, who was believed to be one of the last people to see her alive. During the interview, she was asked if Kathleen had spoken about anybody she had previously dated who had appeared to be acting strange or odd. Shannon said there was one guy that Kathleen had told her about. He drove a small red car and claimed to have been a hitman. Sadly, Shannon would never be able to see justice served in Kathleen's case as, six years later, she fell victim to serial killer Robert Yates. At the time of her murder, Shannon had been set to testify in the trial of Joseph Andrews, who was accused of a unrelated double homicide. All three cases in this episode, all the three homicides, were investigated as a series of murders due to the short time frame in which they occurred and the similar MO. Though, as previously mentioned, the unknown DNA profiles were never compared, perhaps due to the lack of technology or due to police incompetence. We will never know. The detectives had no fresh leads and no indication as to who might have been responsible for the three homicide cases. There were no credible witnesses and no identifiable concrete evidence. 
Eventually, the investigations all went cold and were assigned and reassigned to various different detectives as cold cases. These detectives only had one solid lead to go on, the forensic evidence. Due to advances in DNA technology, authorities resubmitted evidence for testing in 2009, resulting in them finding a full DNA profile in the samples. It's important to note that the DNA profile found through analysis of the swab taken from Kathleen's Brisbane's body was found to be that of a male. So this made it even more shocking when in 2012, a 60 year old woman was linked to the crimes, eventually being officially arrested a year later on suspicion of the murders. Donna Rebecca Perry was born on the 26th of February 1952 in Omak, Washington. Not a lot is known about her childhood and her upbringing, but what we do know is that she was known to local police and had an extensive criminal record. Between the years of 1974 and 1994, Donna was arrested twice for second degree assaults, for a firearms slash dangerous weapons violation, reckless endangerment, aiming or discharging a firearm, simple assault slash domestic violence, soliciting sex, possessing a pipe bomb, and for unlawful possession of firearms and possession of ammunition. Donna also spent two years in prison in Oregon between the years of 1995 and 1997, however it cannot be verified what this conviction was exactly for. She was also involved in an incident in 1998 when she picked up a sex worker and took her back to her home. When they got back to Donna's home, the woman noticed that there were a lot of weapons in her house, including guns, knives, and even a crossbow. According to this woman, Donna told her that she wasn't going to hurt her because she liked her. After they'd engaged in sexual intercourse, the woman called the police and while they were taking her statement, she noticed Donna drive past and pointed her out to the officers. Upon a search of Donna's vehicle, they found that she had two knives and a stun gun on her. And Donna told the police that the reason she was in the area was because she wanted to help get the sex workers off of the streets. Police decided for some reason to take no further action against Donna and let her go. Then in early 2000, Donna dropped off the police radar completely. So how were they able to link Donna to the murders when they had found a male DNA profile at the scene of the crimes? As it turns out, and in another shocking twist that the public following this case were not expecting, Donna Rebecca Perry had been born biologically male. In other words, Donna's assigned gender at birth was male. She had travelled to Bangkok, Thailand in the year 2000 to undergo gender reassignment surgery. Although the murders occurred before she transitioned, we will not be using Donna's birth name, also known as a dead name within the LGBTQ community during this episode. We will also only be using she slash her pronouns when referring to Donna. So how exactly was Donna linked to the crimes in the first place? On the 14th of March 2012, 
Donna Perry was arrested by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms for unlawful possession of firearms and possession of ammunition. Due to this being a federal arrest, her DNA was obtained and entered into CODIS, the Combined DNA Indexing System, a federal DNA database. Exactly six months later, on the 14th of September 2012, detectives received a call to tell them that they had found a hit on the DNA evidence from Kathleen Brisbo's body and that the profile matched that of Donna Perry. Additionally, the fingerprints that had been lifted from the bottle of sexual lubricant discovered during the search of the dumpster where Nikki Lau's pocketbook was found to be Donna's. With these new leads, police assigned to the cold cases rushed to question Donna and determine her exact connection to the triple homicide. When questioned, Donna told police that at the time of the murders, she was driving a 1969 International Scout. However, she said that she had since sold it. She had also been living with her girlfriend at the time, who was a sex worker, and was acquainted with the three women who had been killed. Upon a check of her girlfriend at the time's criminal history, detectives found that she had been booked at the Spokane County Jail on the same date that the bodies of Yolanda Sapp and Kathleen Brisbo were found. So this only made it more incriminating when Donna admitted to bringing women home to solicit sex from them, though was careful to only do it when her girlfriend was not at home. It was during this interview that when asked why she had stopped killing, Donna replied with dead name didn't stop. Donna stopped it. She then went on to say that her gender reassignment had left her paranoid and emotional, but she wasn't going to hurt anybody. When detectives pressed her further, Donna said, quote, I'm not going to admit I killed anybody. I didn't. Donna has killed nobody, end quote. And when one of the detectives interjected with, quote, dead name did, Donna replied, Quote, I don't know if dead name did or not. It was 20 years ago, and I have no idea whether he did or didn't, end quote. Almost a month after this initial interview, detectives located and processed the 1969 International Scout vehicle that Donna had been driving in the 1990s. During the time since the murders, the car had three different owners. Upon a search of the vehicle, law enforcement located an old and partially corroded 22 caliber casing underneath the front passenger floor mat, which was taken as evidence as the caliber matched the weapon that was suspected to have caused the wounds of all three homicide victims. This is when police contacted people who had owned the car previously and none of them could ever recall owning a 22 caliber firearm, which could only mean that the casing had been Donna's, further incriminating her in the deaths. In 2013, law enforcement learned that Donna had made incriminating statements to her cellmate at the prison in Texas where she was incarcerated at the time. She had claimed to this fellow inmate that she was actually a contract killer, had a tremendous knowledge of guns, and that she had killed nine sex workers while, quote, just taking care of business. Donna also claimed to be a sociopath and told the woman the reason she had killed these sex workers was because she couldn't breathe, and the sex workers had the ability to have children, 
but were wasting it being, quote, pond scum. The cellmate eventually testified at the trial that Donna had told her that becoming a woman was a disguise to get the heat off of her and that, quote, nobody would think an elderly lady with a mental illness would get caught. This is something that law enforcement focused heavily on during the trial, with one prosecutor making the statement, quote, she gelded herself like you would a farm animal, end quote, when addressing the court. Donna was charged with three counts of premeditated first-degree murder, with the aggravating circumstance being that the murder was part of a common scheme or plan involving more than one victim. When officers travelled to Texas to bring her to Spokane for her trial, Donna reportedly told them, quote, I'm never going to get out of this. Instead of jail, I hope they send me to Eastern State Hospital. I'm not violent now and that the plane ride would be the last time she would be outside of concrete walls. During her trial, Donna's defense team told the court that they did not contest that the DNA evidence and fingerprint evidence linked her to the three victims, but this was only because she had solicited sex from the sex workers in the area around that time. Although Donna's team did try their best to defend her, she was found guilty of three counts of premeditated murder in the first degree. On the 24th of July 2017, she was sentenced to serve three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. After her sentencing, the families of Donna's victims took turns reading victim impact statements to the court, telling Donna about the pain she had put them through by taking the lives of their loved ones. Yolanda Sapp's youngest daughter told the court that she was only a little girl when her mother was killed, and no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't remember her anymore. She said, quote, if she hadn't been killed by a monster, then I would have a memory. I know you're supposed to forgive, but I can't. I want justice. Her older sister spoke about how her family feared that the killer would come after them one day and told Donna, quote, you took away precious people. I hope you sit in yourself forever and think of the things you have done. Kathleen Brisbo's oldest daughter stood up and thanked her mother for putting up a fight on the day she died, as it was the DNA from underneath Kathleen's fingernails that broke the case. She said, quote, I lost the person who loved me the most in this world. I'm truly honoured and humbled to be here. I never thought this day was going to come. A friend of all three victims also spoke in court saying, quote, I thank everyone who caught this monster before turning to Donna and telling her, I hope you rot in hell. The media coverage surrounding Donna's trial focused heavily on the facts that she was transgender. Every news article that was published on the case at the time would mention Donna's birth name and would even use male pronouns when referring to her. On the first day that Donna was supposed to appear in court, she refused to even show up due to the Spokane County Jail having her listed under her birth name. This meant that her attorneys couldn't meet with her before her trial, with one of them stating in court, quote, they say she's not here because they have her listed under her prior name. Whatever the case, Donna Perry will remain behind bars for the remainder of her life, and we can only hope that Yolanda, Nikki, and Kathleen's family and friends have found justice 
in Donna's eventual conviction. And that's everything that we have for you in today's case. As mentioned at the start of this episode, this video is the first part of our fundraising campaign for the DNA Doe project. You can support the DNA Doe project with every purchase from Pause UK, with 10% of your purchase going to the DNA Doe project. Make sure you use the discount code Joshua for 15% off any order placed before the end of July, and that you tag me in your pictures of you with your candles on social media. You can find a link to Pause UK at the top of the description and in the pinned comment. Make sure you're subscribed to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post a brand new Curious Case episode just like this one. My social media handles on both Twitter and Instagram is at it's Joshua Miles. Follow me on those platforms for behind the scenes content and announcements. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.